Today is February 11th, 2024, uh, Sunday, and tentative title for this talk is No Self and Habits as Far as the Eye Can See. <clears throat> and I want to start out talking about the Buddha's teaching of anatta, or No Self, I'm going to be reading a bit from a book called Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. Uh, Read from this before, but it's been a long time. And we're just going to dip right back into it. This is from a chapter entitled The Alleged Non-Existence of Yourself. And he says, Ajahn Chah, the 20th century Thai monk who did much to spread awareness of Vipassana meditation in the West, used to warn about the difficulty of grasping the Buddhist idea of anatta, or not-self. The basic idea is that the self, yourself, myself, in some sense, doesn't exist. Then he quotes Ajahn Chah, to understand not-self, you have to meditate. If you try to grasp the doctrine through intellectualizing alone, your head will explode. And that's, that's one of the dangers when we get into elucidating this doctrine is um, it's subtle. Uh, it's, uh, there's a lot to think about. And uh, as Ajahn Chah recommends, the best way to understand no self is to meditate, to quiet the mind, to let the thoughts settle and to look into the stillness that remains. But <clears throat> we need to do. We need to know what we're doing, uh, especially as Westerners. And uh, there's a there's an awful lot that you can understand if you really look closely at what it is that we call ourself. It's it's kind of <clears throat> it's kind of mysterious and ridiculous, uh, baffling. Our picture of ourself, I like to say, is, is kind of like a child's crayon drawing we might hang on the refrigerator. It doesn't begin to match up with our true experience. And the, uh, the Buddha's doctrine of no self was one of three characteristics of existence that the Buddha proclaimed. Uh, the first was suffering or dukkha. second was impermanence the fact that nothing lasts everything is in constant flux and change and the third is that there is no self when the Buddha first uh, preached his first sermon on this doctrine of no self he preached it to the uh, famous five ascetics, 
the ones to whom he preached the uh, the four noble truths. Uh, this was the the uh, monks who had been with him during his long quest uh, to deny the body and to find the truth through a form of asceticism, and they had abandoned him when he'd taken food and adopted the middle way, <clears throat> taking care of the body, meeting its needs, and looking into the mind. So this is from an early text called Discourse on the Not-Self, which is said to be the Buddha's earliest utterance on the subject. At the end of this discourse, the five monks are all said to have transitioned from being mere monks to being arhats, that is, truly enlightened beings. They are said to be the first five people to have attained that rank aside from the Buddha himself. I think we can just leave that aside and look at what the Buddha had to say. The Buddha's strategy in this discourse was to shake the monks' confidence in their traditional ideas about the self by asking them where exactly in a human being we find anything that warrants the label self. And he does this search systematically. He looks through each of the five aggregates, And according to Buddhist philosophy, that's all a human being is, these five aggregates. And they are, in brief, the physical body or form, basic feelings, perceptions, that is, sights and sounds. Fourth is mental formations. Uh, Robert Wright said this is a big category that includes complex emotions, thoughts, inclinations, habits, decisions. And finally, five, consciousness or awareness. Notably, the awareness of the contents of the other four aggregates or skandhas. So the Buddha runs through this list and asks if any of these qualify as a self. And his criterion is, do you have control over any of these? Here's what he says about form. If form were self, then form would not lead to affliction. And it should obtain regarding form, may my form be thus, may my form not be thus. But he notes, our bodies do lead to affliction, and we can't magically change that by saying, may my form be thus. So form, the stuff the human body is made of, isn't really under our control. Therefore, says the Buddha, it must be the case that form is not self, or we could say, I am not my body. And then he goes through all the other four aggregates, and it's the same with all of them. It's sort of like what's given. We have a body, we have thoughts, we have uh, perceptions, we have feelings. All of them enter the mind, we become aware of them, but we don't control them. We may try to control them, but each one of us runs up against that difficulty. Uh, Top down does not work very well. And what the Buddha is saying is there is no top. 
from which to control it top down. Wright goes on to explain that control isn't the only property that people tend to associate with self, and uh, it isn't the only property the Buddha examines in his discourse. And he says of himself, when I think of myself, I think of something that persists through time. I've changed a lot since I was 10 years old, but hasn't some inner essence, my identity, myself, in some sense endured? Isn't that the one constant amidst the flux. Of course, the Buddha taught that everything is in flux, including our so-called self. In his discourse, he says, What do you think of this, O monks? Is feeling permanent or impermanent? Obligingly, the monks reply, Impermanent, O Lord. He continues, is perception permanent or impermanent, and so on, through mental formations, the body, consciousness. None of the aggregates is permanent, the monks agree. So two of the properties commonly associated with the self, control and persistence through time, are found to be absent, not evident in any of the five components. This is the core of the argument the Buddha makes in this first and most famous discourse on not-self, and it's commonly taken as the core Buddhist argument that the self does not exist. Of course, Robert Wright, being a scientist, is going on in the book to show what we've been able to learn studying the mind, uh, studying our, our neurology, how our brains are wired, <clears throat> that also converges on this Buddhist understanding that there is no such thing as a self that's acting on other things. Basically, that our image of a self doesn't hold up to scrutiny. One obvious thing that always strikes me is we have absolutely no control over what thought is next going to pop into our mind. It's impossible. How can you know what your next thought is going to be? We talk about them as my thoughts. And there's this tendency to think, well, I thought that, so that must be what I believe. <clears throat> but the, thought, the fact is, if you keep any kind of inventory of the things that run through your mind... There's all sorts of things that turn up there that you don't believe and that you would disavow. Wright turns to, later in the book, uh, experiments that were done back in the 1960s uh, with people who had split brains. In other words, because of some sort of... uh, uh, disease process, typically uh, uh, epilepsy. Uh, the only way to stop the electrical storms in the brain was to cut through the corpus callosum, the, the bridge between left brain and right brain, and it uh, left people uh, with no communication between the two sides of the brain. So, for instance, everything that goes into the left eye 
goes to the right brain, which then controls the left hand, the left leg, and vice versa. And the two hemispheres, the right and the left, are a little different. For instance, language exists only in the left hemisphere, which enabled them to do some really interesting experiments. These uh, studies were done by two neuroscientists named Roger Sperry and Michael Gazaniga. And uh, the key is to confine information to a single hemisphere by presenting it to only half of the patient's visual field. So, for instance, if a word is presented only to the left eye, it won't enter the left hemisphere at all. It'll go to the right hemisphere. It's a little confusing because they cross, but that's just how we're wired. Um, and of course again that's the hemisphere that controls language and he says sure enough patients whose right hemisphere is exposed to say the word nut report no awareness of this input yet their left hand which is controlled by the right hemisphere that is the hemisphere that was exposed that saw the word will if allowed to rummage through a box containing various objects choose a nut. That finding alone could make you start questioning traditional notions of the conscious self. Now consider this one. When the left hemisphere is asked to explain behavior initiated by the right hemisphere, it tries to generate a plausible story. If you send the command walk to the right hemisphere of these patients, they will get up and walk. But if you ask them where they're going, The answer will come from the left hemisphere, which wasn't privy to the command. And this hemisphere will come up with what, from from its point of view, is a reasonable answer. One man replied, plausibly enough, that he was going to get a soda. And the person who comes up with the improvised explanation, at least the person's left hemisphere, the part of the person who's doing the talking, seems to believe the story. There were uh, other studies done later where uh, rather than dividing the hemispheres, uh, they gave people either visible cues or subliminal cues. That is something flashed on a screen so quickly that you have no conscious awareness of it. Uh, They had some sort of setup where you would earn money by squeezing something tightly and uh, before the test there'd be flash up an image of Uh, a coin, either a penny or a pound. Sounds like this was done in Britain. Yes, it was. And they they found that even when the image couldn't actually be seen by the conscious mind, the stakes influenced how hard subjects squeezed their grip. And what they found was that it didn't matter. It didn't matter whether the uh, cue was subliminal or conscious. 
the motivation was the same. People would squeeze harder if it was shown to them subliminally. And so there was no difference. They reported no difference in their motivation, their conscious motivation. And Wright says, is conscious motivation really the right term? That could be taken to mean that the motivation originates with conscious volition. And this experiment suggests a different scenario. The actual brain machinery that translates incentive into motivation is the same regardless of whether you're consciously aware of the incentive and consciously experiencing the translation. So maybe the conscious awareness doesn't really add anything to the process. In other words, maybe it's not so much conscious motivation as consciousness of motivation. You've been subliminally motivated, and you're aware of it, and so you think you did it. With or without conscious awareness, the same physical motivational machinery that is the same wiring in the brain, seems to be doing the heavy lifting. This study, uh, these studies, of course, are uh, commonly known. I mentioned in the uh, last show I gave the studies done by a guy named Benjamin Libet, a neuroscientist at uh, the University of California, uh, who was able to show that Actions we take, for instance, if someone is told to press a button, the action is initiated before we make a conscious decision to do it. So if you're standing on a diving board and you decide to jump in, before you make that decision, your body is already in action. Uh, <clears throat> in response to that, uh, that uh, Taisho, uh, one of our members sent me a sci-fi story that's a setup where artificially intelligent robots are confronting human beings about the ridiculousness of their consciousness. And uh, too long to read it all, but uh, here's a little snippet. This is the robot speaking. Make a conscious choice. Decide to move your index finger. Too late. The electricity is already halfway down your arm. Your body began to act a full half second before your conscious self chose to. For the self chose nothing. Something else set your body in motion, sent an executive summary, almost an afterthought, to the homunculus behind your eyes. Homunculus, of course, means little man, Latin. That little man, that arrogant subroutine that thinks of itself as the person, mistakes correlation for causality. It reads the summary, it sees the hand move, and it thinks that the one drove the other. Really our condition. So many things we do that because we do them, we think we decided to do them. Go back again to that quote from Roshi Kaplow. The reasons people give for the things they do are not the real reasons. No wonder we can't understand why we do the things we do. The actual machinery is elsewhere than in the so-called conscious self. So Wright goes on 
to suggest how it is that we make our decisions. And this is what most uh, scientists studying this puzzle have come to. And uh, I'll read, I'll read a little bit of what he wrote here. If the conscious self is not a CEO, chief executive officer, directing all the behavior it thinks it's directing, how does behavior get directed? How do decisions get made? An increasingly common answer within the field of psychology, especially evolutionary psychology, is that the mind is modular. In this view, your mind is composed of lots of special modules. We could, we could also say subroutines or just patterns, uh, ad hoc constellations of nerve paths that, uh, that perform certain actions. So he says, modules for sizing up situations and reacting to them, and it's the interplay among these modules that shapes your behavior. And much of this interplay happens without conscious awareness on your part. A lot of different ways of thinking about these modules, and he cautions against many of them. Uh, he says here, the modules aren't like departments in a company's organization chart. Maybe this goes without saying, given what I was just noticed, noted about how fluidly interactive and overlapping the modules are. And given that the whole context for this discussion is that our minds lack a CEO. Still, it's worth dwelling on how utterly unlike the idealized working of a corporation, the operation of the mind is. Among the traits modules often lack are obedience and harmony. Yes, the modules may sometimes collaborate, but they sometimes compete, and they can compete fiercely. <clears throat> Someone once did a series of jokey organizational charts for major corporations, and Microsoft, famous for its infighting, was depicted as a circular firing squad. <laughs> Our minds aren't that torn by internal strife, but they're sometimes as close to that as Microsoft's official organization chart. <clears throat> and Gazaniga, one of these uh, two ex experimenters from the 1960s, have wrote, while hierarch hierarchical processing takes place within the modules, it is looking like there is no hierarchy among the modules. All these modules are not reporting to a department head. It is a free-for-all, self-organizing system. So basically, the way, one way of understanding it is we have various uh, below-the-surface constellations of subroutines, things we could do, the uh, mate acquisition routine, a runaway-from-danger routine, and basically whichever one rises to the surface has the strongest signal gets activated. And so there is this sort of competition <clears throat> and they're responding to the changes in our environment, the various cues. Uh, it's a good way to understand addiction. Uh, you get into the wrong space with the wrong people and the wrong stimuli, and all of a sudden, uh, what we can call a module swings into action, and there is an intense, intense urge to go in a certain direction. <clears throat> 
This is getting into the habits as far as the eye can see. Gazzaniga also says, whichever notion you happen to be conscious of at a particular, particular moment is the one that comes bubbling up, the one that becomes dominant. It's a doggy dog world going on in your brain with different systems competing to make it to the surface to win the prize of conscious recognition. <clears throat> I always get a little um, quibble a little bit with the idea of uh, imputing in, uh, intent to processes like these. Uh, it's like saying that evolution wants to do this or that. It's just a pattern that produces a result. says, Gazaniga is talking more about struggles that get resolved at an unconscious or barely conscious level. The things I pay attention to, the stories I tell about the things I pay attention to, the stories I tell about myself, all these result from choices getting made, and I, the conscious I, the thing I think of as myself, is by and large not making the choices. It's almost enough to make you wonder whether the thing you think of as yourself deserves the label. Uh, another uh, professor at the, uh, of psychology written, named Kurtzbahn has written, in the end, if it's true that your brain consists of many, many little modules oops, with various functions, and if only a small number of them are conscious, then there might not be any particular reason to consider some of them to be you, or really you, or yourself, or maybe anything else particularly special. <clears throat> when Kurzban wrote that in a book called Why Everyone Else is a Hypocrite, Evolution and the Modular Mind, he wasn't conversant with the Buddhist idea of not-self. But millennia after that idea arose, science had steered him towards it. So we're left with the issue of how do I get myself to do the things I value, to do what I want? How do I get myself to do the things that are going to make me happy, that are going to help me, help others? The story in the popular media is it's a matter of willpower, isn't it? Just do it. Put your mind to it. <clears throat> Anyone who struggled to get themselves to do what they know they want to do realizes that it's not that easy. And a lot has been written on the whole difficulty of working with patterns, with habits, going to read a little bit from a book called Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. 
find the author of this book, which I have on an iPad here. Somebody named Wendy Wood. Don't know much about her, but uh, pretty good book. She, uh, she begins the book by giving the example of a cousin of hers who went on to Facebook and announced that she was going to be starting a diet. And, of course, she did it so that she would raise the stakes. And uh, because everybody knew what she was trying to do, she would be so afraid of failing that surely she would push through and lose the weight that she had decided she needed to lose. <clears throat> Don't want to get into whether she really needed to lose that weight or not. Just uh, use weight loss as one of the things that people find that they try to do and fail at. She says, how hard is it really to change ourselves? Like most of us, my cousin intuitively knew the answer. It's pretty hard. So she came up with some proactive ways to commit to that change. She bound herself to her plans and raised the costs of failure. She went beyond simply choosing to change. She started to craft her own social environment into one that made it harder for her to not lose weight. This should have worked. It did. Two weeks after her first post, she updated, down two pounds. That's a great beginning. <clears throat> but then, silence. A month later, she posted that she was still trying, but without much success. No weight loss to tell you about yet. <clears throat> And that was her last post for a while on the topic. When I met up with her again six months later, she hadn't lost any additional weight. In fact, the only change was that now she had an additional failure to feel bad about, a costly public one. The end result for her and for so many people who try to change their behavior is that it just didn't happen. She had the desire. She had the determination. She had some peer support. There's supposed to be enough but they're not. Right now, there are a lot of people uh, <clears throat> doing the term intensive, and I'm sure some of you are running into the limitations of how much you can accomplish with just just with willpower it's uh willpower is like a muscle and it's got so much strength and then it gets tired doesn't it uh, the author makes the point let's see if she's going to make it here yeah let me go ahead and read the way she puts it here uh, and then we'll talk about it a little more uh, she says, science is showing that regardless of Nike ads and conventional wisdom, we are not one single unified whole. In psychological terms, we do not have a single mind. Instead, our minds are composed of multiple separate but interconnected mechanisms that guide behavior. This will sound familiar, of course. Some of these mechanisms, it turns out, are suited to handle change. These are the features we know our decision-making ability, and willpower. These are familiar because we consciously experience them. When we make decisions, 
We consciously attend to relevant information and generate solutions. When we exert willpower, we actively engage mental effort and energy. Decisions and willpower draw on what we call executive control functions in the mind and brain, which are thoughtful cognitive processes to select and monitor actions. We are mostly aware of these processes. They are, they are our subjective reality or the sense of agency that we recognize as me. Much as we experience the stress of exerting physical strength, we are aware of the heavy lift of exerting mental strength. There have been a lot of experiments with this where you have somebody do a difficult task and then uh, put them in a situation that calls for willpower and lo and behold, they have less of it. They're more likely to have that extra donut than if they hadn't done the difficult task. She says, executive control must be paid its due. Many of life's challenges require nothing more than this. A decision to ask for a raise at work starts with setting an appointment with your boss. You carefully phrase your request, outline your reasons. Or you decide to add some romance to your life by asking that attractive person at the gym to meet for coffee. After some deliberation, you find an appropriately casual way to do so. Decisiveness works in these one-off events. We make our decision, steal our resolve, and muster our strength to follow through. Then comes the part that we're all familiar with. Other parts of our lives, however, are stubbornly resistant to executive control. And thinking every time we act would in any case be a highly inefficient way of conducting our lives. Can you imagine trying to make the decision to go to the gym every single time you went? You'd be condemning yourself to rekindling the ardor of day one every single day. You'd be forcing your mind to go through that exhausting process of engaging with all the reasons that you felt you should be going to the gym in the first place, and because our minds are wonderfully, irrationally adversarial, you'd have to run through the reasons not to go to. Each time, every day, that's how decision-making works. You would constantly be in the throes of heavy mental lifting with little time to think about anything else. And that, in brief, is the reason why it's so hard to change our habits using willpower alone. Okay, good. <laughs> One of those subroutines. <laughs> I just don't seem to control them. Um, okay, low power mode is now on. <clears throat> you know, the uh, artificial intelligence can always have the plug pulled. Okay, there we go. There's an awful lot of material uh, out there about working with habits, and uh, this book that I just read from goes into some of it. I don't have time to explain to you exactly how you can turn your life upside down and become a more attractive and happy person (laughs) by following those techniques. But to give them their due, doing things like thinking about the cues that trigger your actions, putting yourself in a position where it's easier to succeed, Those are all things that an intelligent person is going to do. 
when we, when we have the introductory workshop, a lot of what we talk about at the very end is things you can do to set up your house so you're, it's easier for you to sit, explain the rationale behind, behind finding a particular time of day when you sit each day. It just makes it easier. It's not something that you have to negotiate every time you decide to sit. It's just like, oh, I woke up, I brushed my teeth, now I sit on the mat. When you get a routine like that going, you find that sitting becomes an integrated habit and it's no longer an effort. If you try to make your mind up each day to sit and argue it through, just as um, the author said, you're going to find yourself short of energy, short of willpower. It's not an inexhaustible resource. A lot of times what people do is they replace one habit that they, let's call it a bad habit, with another one. And uh, it's simply a matter of hijacking the cue when uh, when, uh, suddenly you're in that situation where you want to take a drink, say, uh, instead of drinking a beer, you drink a glass of water. I used to use that method when I was uh, drinking. I was using it to not get too drunk. I wanted to get just drunk enough and then just coast in. <clears throat> and I was able to do that from time to time by setting down the beer or whatever I was drinking and slugging water for the rest of the night. It was actually a very uh, skillful little move I had. Uh, everything fell apart one night when the friend who used to remind me that that's what I did wasn't there. And I just kept drinking beer. thank goodness because otherwise I'd probably still be drinking so a lot of changes we can make to practical things we can work on how much we eat how much we sleep when we sleep how much physical activity we get how often we use our phones how often we sit and set up routines to come to the center at particular times. Uh, can make it a point to create a habit of spending more time with close friends and family, making phone calls, for instance. Uh, but with all of these, we need more than just that executive decision. We need to consider context and cues. We need to understand what drives our behavior. We need to pay attention to how things play out. If we're just gritting our teeth and trying to do it, we're not going to really understand how it works. So So much of spiritual growth, every kind of growth, depends on understanding. Starting with the understanding that we're really not in charge of the process. We have some leverage in some sort of sense, but can't just be the way we want it. There are things over which we are powerless. And yet, and yet, things change. We're never condemned to any one pattern. One of the big problems is when we try to make a change, Uh, We're caught up in what we want and what we don't want. 
And that, that leads me to a whole other area of habits. And those are habits of the mind. The tendency to beat up on ourselves. The tendency to see things in uh, good and bad. So Taoist sage, Chuang Tzu, who said, good and bad is a disease of the mind. Automatic habits of competing with other people, of wanting to be the center of attention, of worrying about what other other people think of us. Habits that are expressed simply with physical tension. People have a way of breathing. Is it completely free and natural? Not very often. You watch a dog sleeping. You see the breath moving freely through a body that's not tied in knots by thoughts of good and bad. Has no concern for the opinion of others other than maybe wanting to be a good dog. (laughs) We'll grant them that. With a lot of those deep mental tendencies, the answer, if I can say it, is zazen, is awareness. There's a... uh, Jesuit priest you've heard from before named Anthony DeMello. He has one book that I tend to read read from all the time, but he's written other books or other books have been assembled from things he said. And this is from a book called Stop Fixing Yourself. And this is a chapter entitled Stop Fixing Yourself. Suppose there is a way to get rid of all that. That is everything that you think you need to fix. Suppose there is a way to stop that tremendous drain of energy, health, and emotion that comes from conflicts and confusion. Would you want that? Suppose there is a way that we could truly love one another and be at peace, be at love. People ask me all the time, what do I need to do to change myself? If you are one of those people, I've got a big surprise for you. You don't have to do anything. In fact, the more you do, the worse it gets. All you have to do is understand. The trouble with most people is that they're busy trying to fix things in themselves that they really don't understand. Stop fixing yourself. You're okay. Don't interfere. Don't fix anything. Simply watch, observe. These things in you that you struggle to fix just need to be understood. If you understood them, they would change. The Buddha, one time talking about the things that we grab, we grab at, talked about the worm and the hook. If you only see the worm, of course this is from a fish's point of view where the worm is something you would like to eat. If you only see the worm, you're going to bite. If you see the hook, you won't. So understanding has a really important role, doesn't it? Most people have never stopped to consider this simple fact. Their efforts are going to get them nowhere. 
Their efforts will only make things worse as things become worse when you use fire to put out fire. Effort does not lead to growth. Effort, whatever the form it takes, whether it be willpower, habit, a technique, or a spiritual exercise, does not lead to change. <clears throat> I'd like to interject here that there are places for effort. For instance, there may be an effort to get your practice started. But what we're pointing towards, awareness, is beyond effort. DeMello says, at best, effort leads to repression and a cowering, a covering over of the root problem. Effort may change the outward behavior, but it does not change the inner person. Just think of what kind of mentality it betrays when you ask, what must I do to get holiness? What sacrifices must I make? What discipline must I undertake? What meditation must I practice in order to get it? Think of a man who wants to win the love of a woman and attempts to improve his appearance, build his body, change his behavior, and practice techniques to charm her. And so it is with spirituality and holiness. It is not what you do that brings it to you. What matters is what you are and what you become. Of course, what we are is a product of what we pay attention to, what we're aware of. What is it that keeps us from awareness? DeMello is on to something when he says it's our feeling that we have to fix ourselves. Talked last time about attitudes that we can that we can bring to practice that are conducive to awareness, contentment, interest acceptance, could name others, gratitude. Many people are aware of the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abodes, compassion, loving-kindness, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. All those arise when we're no longer competing, we're no longer fighting. All those arise when we're able to say, right now it's like this. Blame and praise, good and bad, they're all meaningless when there's really no self. If we do well, that's a product of things that are beyond our control. We're lucky. We won the lottery. And yet, we do have the ability to go in a certain direction, 
not going to be able to control every factor, not going to be able to make ourselves the way we think we should be. We're going to be allow. We're going to be able to get ourselves out of the way and allow ourselves to grow naturally in a healthy direction. Where that takes us, we don't even know. Others have done it before us, so we do the experiment. Aren't any simple answers, but there are a lot of things that we can notice and stop doing. There's that saying, if you keep walking into the same wall, turn left or turn right. Don't try harder, try different. It's so promising to have a way of working on the self that doesn't depend on a conscious director making decisions, checking on how we're doing. Trust the process. Of all the things Roshi ever told me, that's the one that struck the deepest chord. John, just trust the process. You can use your intelligence to arrange things so that the process continues, so that you keep hitting the mat. You can use your awareness to see when you're going astray. You can use your kindness and compassion to forgive yourself when you do things wrong, as you inevitably will. You can use your determination to just keep trying. I love the image of determination as a stream, finding its way around obstacles. going on the journey. Well, there's the bell. (laughs) We'll stop now and recite the four vows.